They wanted me to start with a hook about Audrey somebody, which is a British actor. I don't Audrey know Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn is... Audrey Hepburn is not an Audrey somebody. Audrey Hepburn is the Audrey. Let's talk about Audrey Hepburn, who Jack has no idea about. Um, they just I... introduced me to this lady from the show notes for like two Not like this lady. Ago. Audrey Hepburn is, is brilliant. I, I may have never seen an Audrey Hepburn movie, and yet the name is synonymous with me with like sleek, famous celebrity actor. That's Marilyn Monroe. You are old, old man. No, but Audrey Hepburn is thin. Is that the point? Yeah, okay. So the, the point is, right, Audrey Hepburn has been known for her petite figure. Apparently, the reason that Audrey Hepburn was so petite and she had an abnormal metabolism was because her parents, mainly her mother, had her, like when her mom was pregnant with her, she was in like a famine. It was during a famine. And somehow that affected her biologically, which is insane because normally we think of evolution, Darwinism as something that happens over a long term. Um, and we also don't think of incidents that have happened before us in previous generations to affect us. So let me get this straight. What this is trying to say is that instead of a long pacing of Darwinism that happens over like a bajillion years, we compress a similar effects down into a small period of time, like whatever, a lifetime or whatnot. Right. Um, and it's also a little bit different because normally we think about Darwinism as an environment. We are adapting to an environment and that's why over time we see species change. Um, in this situation, we see more that the environment affects the person. In this case, the environment is affecting a specific person and their lineage as opposed and actually changing something about their genetic information as opposed to changing the makeup of a population. So the normal Darwin experiments or normal Darwin examples are of populations being shifted by events that make some attributes more helpful. In this case, there is a, a not the genetic code is not rewritten, but there's this concept of epigenetics which is is a second layer upon our genome that signals to our body you know, what pieces of the genome to express what things are important. And so oh, you can imagine if you make it harder to read something about turning in fat into, about using fat to make calories, you will hold on to fat more. Or if you're not able to make as much of that enzyme. Okay. Um, essentially, epigenetics is a study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So essentially, unlike normal, what we think of like genetic changes, whether it's genetic mutations or evolution that happens throughout a population, epigenetic changes are reversible and they don't directly change your DNA sequence, um, but they change how your body reads a DNA sequence. Okay, is this you... actually reversible though? Like, is it reversible in the? I think it's re it's reversible in some in some ways, right? No, so but like... is it reversible in the? Oh, we can flip this code on back, so DNA changes are a reversible sense, or it's reversible as in like it's not like after a few generations, it like goes away. Oh, so it has, has an expiration date. Yeah. So you can imagine the same cake would taste different with one frosting as another. It changes the phenotype of how a gene is expressed, even if nothing about oh, the genetics itself changes. Between the winter of 1944 and the spring of 1945, there is a six-month famine in essentially all of the Netherlands. This was a famine that was felt by many, many people. It was not just a few people going hungry. It was 
a lack of food because of wartime conditions that pervaded the entire country. This allows for a very unique opportunity to study the effects of famine several generations down. As you can compare the metabolism of a person born during that time period who would have had all sorts of strange enzymes and reactions flowing through them when they were born to someone to a sibling who was born two years earlier and doesn't get the epigenetic effect from their parents. There's a paper written in 2018 by a group of scientists led by a Toby Elmar that investigated the epigenetic mechanisms around this metabolic disease, these altered and changed metabolisms, such as possibly Audrey Hepburn, in people who were born during the Dutch family. So this type of thing, right, we would be able to classify it as intergenerational trauma of, of some sort, which, listeners, if you haven't already caught on, is the topic of today's podcast. Intergenerational trauma, which can sometimes be referred to as transgenerational or multi-generational trauma, is defined as a trauma that gets passed down from those who directly experienced an incident to subsequent generations who didn't necessarily experience that same incident. We're going to go through a lot of topics today, and uh, we have brought down the show into our show notes into sort of three main categories. Uh, First, uh, we're going to lead a small discussion essentially about a disclaimer on the ethicality of studying people's trauma. And you'll hear a few studies that we found eh, ethically questionable, but was still peer-reviewed and published. And uh, was studying exactly and causing, in fact, what they define as trauma in children to try to study them and study their responses. We're going to discuss what is trauma, i.e. and settle a long debate between the few of us about if trauma is the act of producing trauma or the act or the result of the production itself. We're going to talk about the idea of nature versus nurture, whether or not trauma and whether or not intergenerational trauma is something that is sort of environmentally driven primarily or genetically driven, simply exposed as a trait. Intergenerational trauma is kind of tricky to study because sometimes you get a horrible thing that happens to a large population of people, which allows a fair or the Dutch famine, which allows for a wide ranging study of the effects of these things. However, in order to draw strong scientific conclusions, one usually needs to try to have two well-controlled groups, one of which an intervention is applied and one of which there isn't. There's a small problem here, which is you cannot at all ethically control two groups and then traumatize one of them. I think we see it right as science is always striving to to get the best analysis, to get the best data, to get the best conclusions. You want to be able to control your dependent and independent variables as much as possible. Um, And when it comes to studies about trauma, like Michael was saying, it's pretty hard, um, especially when there were large scale traumatic events that allow for a lot of opportunity for study. But at the same time, it's hard to control a lot of the other variables. One of the studies we read um, by Rachel Yehuda and Amy Lerner talking about the intergenerational transmission of trauma effects and the putative role of epigenetic mechanisms. 
I found this quote that kind of summed up what we're talking about in terms of ethics, morality, what's going on in the realm of trauma studies. Um, and they tell you that the most compelling work to date has been done in animal models, where the opportunity for controlled designs enables clear interpretations of transmissible effects. TLDR, they're just traumatizing mice. They realized um, pretty early on that you can't control trauma for humans that well. It's kind of hard and pretty unethical to traumatize people. So they decided the next best, well, 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 Jack will talk about that a little bit more. Um, but we, yes, but so then they realized why not traumatize animals because we can do plenty of tests on animals and it's not as bad. Um, so we'll see that a lot of the studies that we bring up have some case studies that are studies of humans, um, that we've been able to attain. And then a lot of the other studies have been studies in, in mice, um, or other animals in order to demonstrate, um, um, intergenerational trauma. Well, I think that like researching on trauma generally brings up the question of like cost versus benefit because in the scientific community, obviously intel and learning new things is always a priority, but it is a big question about whether you are taking advantage of a traumatized person or doing more harm than you are good. And I feel like there's definitely a gray area because it's hard to quantify the amount of trauma somebody feels as a result of your study. You can quantify it qualitatively but there is no quantifiable quantitative measurement of trauma. So genome-wide association studies um, are a class of very quantifiable qualitative studies in a sense where they are qualitative that they only tell you the correlation between two things and don't have any numerical numbers on the prediction or causation power of two things happening. Uh, for instance, the GWAS may tell you that having this single nucleotide polymorphism on like your 23rd nucleotide tells you that it's strongly correlated with, you know, you you know, eating an ice cream on a Thursday or whatever, right? And these two factors could have nothing to do with each other and could be just two sets of completely random data. But as long as they're correlated, it is strongly correlated, it is reportable in a GWAS. There's a proxy to this in the epigenetic world, and that is EWAS, the epigenetic-wide association study. For example, an EWAS was used in the uh, Dutch famine paper. The Dutch hunger study looked at families who had older people who had been victims of trauma, as well as younger people who had not been direct victims of trauma. They looked for correlation between prenatal famine exposure, i.e. whether when you were in utero, your mother was in a time of famine, relation between that and adult outcomes of things like overweightness or, or other, or blood glucose. All these correlated factors. And then they did an EWAS to see what particular parts of the epigenome, these tags, which help us read the genome and affect how the genome is expressed, were correlated with this already found correlation between adult health outcomes and prenatal exposure to famine. I want to be careful here, which is that I don't want to say that any GWASs or EWASs are well or bad. Um, mostly because they, the, people frequently say that GWAS, like the WASs family are bad. And that is because often it is the conclusions are way overstretched by either the press or people even like reporting themselves going like, oh, like going, oh, your thing says that these factors are correlated with each other. That must mean that this thing causes that thing. 
And I'm sure if you've collected every possible piece of qualitative data and correlated with every possible piece, like geno genomic data, you'll get ridiculous things like the 33rd chromosome on like the 23rd chromosome having this SNP in this type causes you to eat more like fish fingers on a Tuesday when it's sunny. Like I'm sure you can have these correlations and it is more about it informs you what direction you should go into looking, and it tells you that there exists a correlation more than anything else. So in the ever-loving quest of trying to define the scope of trauma or define the scope of intergenerational trauma and put some numbers on things, a group of researchers actually decided to use humans as a test subject uh, instead of the popular mice models or animal models that are used. And this does mean that they are in some ways inflicting trauma onto children, so but before we begin, let's just get the basic facts about the study down. The goal of the study is to learn a little bit more uh, from a psychological perspective and a quantitative psychology perspective of what intergenerational trauma looks like, uh, and specifically in terms of signaling. And signaling is a process by which an external supporter um, tells you or assures you of the safety or lack of, lack of safety of a specific situation. And what they're trying to get at is a uh, sort of a measurement by proxy of inhibition and the ability to understand a certain condition based on uh, arbitrary external signals. What this means in practice, however, is very ethically unquestionable in my opinion. And I'm going to present the facts about the study without most withholding most judgment, and uh, we can discuss from there. They took a sample of African American families. Uh, and found mothers uh, who have experienced sexual abuse and other forms of trauma, um, essentially they formed two groups, so normal trauma and sexual trauma. And they grabbed their children and essentially jump-scared them, right? But during the process of jump-scaring, uh, they... Uh, I, during the process of jump-scaring, they gave a control group no signal. They gave one experiment group a safety signal, which is, I'm about to jump scare you, don't worry. And they gave the other group arbitrary signals, i.e. the signal does not correlate with the time nor the whether or not uh, a startle is going to happen. And then they found, uh, overall, they overall found that for mothers who have experienced trauma, regardless of what kind, their children are much likely uh, to be ignoring or to be not comforted by safety signals and they would exhibit the same set of fear behavior as would the control group as well as the random shape experiment group question um did they have an alternative they i assume hopefully they had a control group of people who were not traumatized right yes or yeah the, like uh, tr nature of trauma has been controlled and whether or not trauma took place has been controlled okay so of course they controlled this by checking right. against uh, mothers who have not been traumatized okay. or at least not have been reportedly traumatized right, right i mean this study just bogs my mind yeah because on one hand like they are studying the thing what they're really studying is this signaling like how can we alleviate the effects of intergenerational trauma and so the ends are somewhat good you could say but they're doing this by jump scaring kids who they believe are going to be scared and it's gonna bring up intergenerational trauma and in case it isn't clear that's bad and so you have all of these mixed ideas of when do the ends really justify the means how far how much are we willing to 
bring up trauma in people to study and understand it and well even is it ethical to jump scare people like is it is it ethical to target a specific subpopulation and why is it ethical to target yeah, subpopulations i think my main concern um about this study was that they targeted a specific subpopulation i remember reading the study and it said specifically we only chose african-american for this study um and there wasn't that <laughs> they tried to tie it to slavery and yeah and i'm gonna be honest it didn't basically work. their their whole conclusion was something something slavery something something inhibition something something african-american which is incredibly racist and as well as doesn't make that much sense <laughs> the conclusions were interesting um which is i think when i first read it i like tied it to um Seligman's theory and depression um, about learned helplessness. He did really controversial and pretty unethical um, studies on dogs and and helpless and learned helplessness. Um, and I see this study as kind of an extension of that in understanding how, like, understanding cognitive distance and also how people interact with the world in terms of safety um, and and trauma. In inhibition, inhibition, in inhibition of right. like. The, the, like inability to be consoled in a sense yes mm -hmm. right so we read this maternal trauma paper and we try to understand does did this pass down intergenerational trauma happen because it was somehow epigenetically passed down to these kids or was it maybe something in the culture or in the way they were raised um or in kind of the surroundings um and it kind of brings us to our nature versus nurture debate in terms of intergenerational trauma right and whether trauma is passed down because someone is in an adverse situation that may perpetuate trauma because their parents were placed into a traumatic situation or is it because epigenetically something is fundamentally changed um and then passed down to to your offspring well okay first of all let's say the thing that is probably the case which is that it's a bit of both right mm. it is with most things in life, including this one, I doubt that there's going to be a solution that's going to be 100% true. However, there is still a question to be had, which is that in the study of epigenetics, does nature play a bigger part or does nurture play a bigger part? Or really, should we be watching nurture as an important predictive or preventative factor to intergenerational trauma? I want to take a little bit of a stand against that question. I think that it's interesting but not a true dichotomy. You say, hey, which one should we be trying to prevent, nature or nurture, passing down intergenerational trauma? I really don't think it's that easy. Yeah, I think that there are some things where nature pervades and some things where nurture pervades. It's, and we need to be able to find what pieces are what so that we can not be trying to do... Because if we can do all of the talk therapy and and trying to change how parents parent that we want, but if there's an epigenetic change in the child, we have to address that as something that's there and something that the child specifically needs focused, targeted help. And that no matter how much you try and... And, you know, I'm going to go big here. 
or there is in the Jewish community the uh, Holocaust survivors moved essentially became a diaspora. They were fairly concentrated in Eastern Europe and then they spread out going as far as Argentina and Australia and America and all over the place. They tried then to essentially forget about the past and not pass it down to their kids. They settled down, tried to assimilate, and this is a general thing, of course, not everything happened quite like this, but the general narrative is of survivors who tried to assimilate with their, or with the culture that they landed in. And so in America, this looked like not talking about the Holocaust, trying to lead a normal, often suburban lifestyle and give their kids a chance at normalcy without the trauma of the Eastern European Jewish experience. If there are epigenetic markers being passed down that are changing the way that the children's minds work, the way that they react to stimuli and giving them post or giving them traces of this trauma, then no matter how much work a parent does to try and shield their child, something's being passed down. And it's important to know that. I think that this kind of relates to a phenomenon observed in 2003 in a paper by Oshin about how there is this hypothesis that it takes a time span of two generations to stimulate the willingness and motivation to return to traumatic past for people that have dealt with trauma in their lifetimes. And so using this Holocaust example, partly since Micah brought it up and partly since it is sort of the benchmark for trauma research, it sort of looks like grandparents opening up to their grandchildren more than they did to their children. And it looks like a survivor's willingness to talk about it when it when it can when the knowledge can be parted over two generations. So does intergenerational trauma, um, in this case, is a thing that could be exacerbated by storytelling? By oral tradition, as in can intergenerational, can what we usually associate as something positive, i.e., intergenerational trauma, be something that is? No, I think I I would argue that the act of telling the stories is a form of healing and probably helps solve back for problematic and traumatic, or for problematic intergenerational trauma. Right? I think they've. The key, I think, like one of the benchmarks, right, in, in therapy and in discussing and understanding and treating PTSD, right, is being able to talk about it and being able to relive those moments without having something catastrophic happen, without having an anxiety attack, without breaking down. Um, and I think seeing that people are able to revisit these instances and discuss them with much younger generations i don't know if it's necessarily proof of, i mean like people always say like time heals right but i think i would argue if anything it's not a factor that adds to negative intergenerational trauma but if anything it would it would serve to to heal it and, and solve back for some of the more negative issues and problems kind of a data gap around there since my gut instinct is the same talking about these things with our families will heal and will make intergenerational trauma better. 
The answer but is there's really, no study backing. We this. don't know. There's no study backing this, as Jack said. And we there is a lot of evidence to suggest that for the grandparent that's talking about it will be healthy for them getting over trauma. But then you just end up with talk therapy. That's just talk therapy. Well, no, yeah, but that's, sorry, that's what I was saying. I think I was I was referencing how there have been a multitude of studies about how talking about a traumatic instance helps heal from it. And and I was talking about in terms of in terms of grandparents. But you're right, I think in terms of what it does for, for kids, for, for the grandkids, um, it, it looks different. One thing that we see repeatedly coming up in these conversations about a family experience with trauma is that these stories are inherently stories. Trauma isn't a monolith. And when we're doing studies like the one that Jack described around where you are having scientists and researchers is intentionally causing effects X or doing signaling, this is not the same scale at which trauma happens. Trauma doesn't happen in a, or trauma doesn't necessarily happen in a controlled lab environment. And that's when you study it like that, you're kind of hitting the limits of studying something in its own environment. It is inherently this subjective, personal thing. And so all of these studies are flawed because of that. quantify jack was talking about this micah you've been talking about this it's hard to quantify cultural trauma right an intergenerational trauma that has been passed through non-biological factors which i think is a big reason that a lot of studies tend to gravitate towards quantifying trauma through epigenetics and and doing it in a controlled area for example like on mice right so there was this really comprehensive study done um by biopsych psychiatry actually um by chan nugent and bale and they looked at trauma that passed down through parents um but specifically prenatal um specifically like prenatal trauma so that would be looking to see if there have been epigenetic differences mutations in for example a father's sperm and then seeing how that presents itself in um the offspring they weren't really able to do that with maternal stress, um, obviously, because it's hard to get someone's, it's like much harder to get someone's eggs. It's not that hard to get someone's sperm. Um, but they were able to measure modes of paternal stress transmission. And then they used maternal stress transmission by a placenta. Um, and they were able to reach a series of conclusions about offspring and, and what outcomes tend to look like um, when there is specific amounts of stress at different points um, in time. And so this will go in the show notes because it's a really comprehensive image and, and chart. But I think some of the most interesting things, other than there were like different exposures were classified, whether it was like chronic stress, preconception trauma, like a specific famine, social defeat. A lot of these presented themselves as offspring having more propensities, higher propensities for PTSD, um, even ADHD, higher risks of depression um, or sensitivity and reduced cortisol levels. At the same time, I think one interesting biological factor that was often affected um, was gluten toe is was gluco sorry was glucocorticoid levels um and glucocorticoids are essentially 
like medicines of some sort um but they're a type of steroid um that fights inflammations and works with your immune system so if your immune system starts acting up it kind of fights to to lessen that um and interestingly enough high levels of stress and trauma in parents actually affected these levels which was really interesting to think about how trauma can affect can change um and be really different and effective in terms of like health and your actual systems whether it presents itself as depression higher propensity for like anxiety or schizophrenia um these are all things that have potential to be passed down because of trauma in your parents um and they also have potential to cause really harmful issues um that might not necessarily be directly correlated with the trauma that your parents experience right for example if it's a famine it might make sense that generations down people become more obese um but at the same time right like if i'm just thinking your mom went through a traumatic incident and then you have a higher propensity for adhd or schizophrenia or your immune system starts acting up more that doesn't seem like a super direct causation um so it's interesting to see how how it how it affects and and how it ends up playing out um and how like a lot of biological factors and things that happen in utero or even pre um utero can really change someone in a way um, that isn't necessarily curable, um, but definitely like treatable, right? Well, I think that in in considering solutions, you once again have to account for the variability of the way trauma manifests in people that experience it and their children and how both epigenetics and the way that children grew up play into their intergenerational trauma and the way that that is treated and sort of building off of what Mia was saying earlier there is this sort of dichotomy between like direct trauma where children end up behaving similarly to their parents and almost reliving aspects of their parents traumas and indirect trauma where children are not necessarily directly affected by the parents trauma but are rather trying to compensate for their parents losses or maybe have some more strained relationships with their parents and it doesn't necessarily create new trauma for them but definitely results in a different manifestation of trauma and also there have been studies on different parenting styles or classifications i believe um Daniele in the 1980s started classifying styles of trauma as they showed up in parents where some parents would be victim styles where they would have difficulty moving on from the original trauma and those who were emotionally detached from their children or those who just kind of didn't talk very much about it. And so I think that though there are some, though there are some collective beliefs about healing, such as talking about trauma helps alleviate it or helps start a positive conversation about it, there is also a lot of variability that's sort of hard to account for in trying to come up with a blanket umbrella solution that will help survivors of trauma and people that experience intergenerational trauma as a result. Well, if we you know, look at, at studies that have looked at specific epigenetic markers, you could imagine theoretically we are working on genome editing right now why not epigenome editing yes this is very far off but what if we could take a marker or that we knew was strongly linked to passing down intergenerational trauma and just change that 
yes, there's massive ethical questions to this. But what if there was a little tag on your DNA saying like, like that was that had been found to be tied with is schizophrenia being passed down and through Holocaust survivors? If you had good studies on that, you can make a case that you should change the genome of this yet to be born kid. It, however, that obviously doesn't work. I guess if it's epigenome, we can change the expression of the gene after they're born. Intergenerational trauma is extraordinarily interesting in and of itself, how it's passed down epigenetically and through you know, parenting styles. But it's also a very interesting, but it's also extraordinarily interesting because of all of these questions that it raises about the meta-science. How do we do science? How do we do science ethically? What does it mean to try and get scientific results with these sorts of super real-world ideas? IVF, while CRISPR may somewhat be a thing of of the future of gene editing, and IVF is real. IVF is now. These are discussions that need to and should be had. And yes, they're not all about epigenetics, but it's an extraordinarily powerful lens to view these debates through, as it's something that such needs, as intergenerational trauma is something that is so pervasive, and it is so needed to find solutions for it.